now more than ever, reaching out on social media is something that works. It's easier than just getting someone's email. You should do it and not be too persistent. But a lot of people are getting signed by just straight DMing people. A lot of PROs, performing rights organizations, they meet writers very early on and then they will tip off managers and publishers to some of the younger writers that just got affiliated that don't really have much going on. But honestly, for young songwriters, I think first and foremost, get affiliated with the PRO and try and meet someone there because they have great connection. This episode is brought to you by DistroKid. DistroKid is a distribution service that can get your music into all the DSPs like Spotify, Apple Music, TikTok, Tidal, Instagram. Over a million artists have used DistroKid. I'm one of those artists. I've used DistroKid to get my music out, distribute some of my songs. As you know, as I look into all of these distribution services, I test them out. And DistroKid is great. They offer a ton of features annual fee, unlimited uploads, and you keep 100% of your royalties. Check out districtkid.com. What's going on? Welcome to the New Music Business. I'm your host, Ari Herstand, author of How to Make It in the New Music Business, the book, third edition, coming out later this year. Look out for that third edition of the book. Today, my guest is Jamie Zella Kinlan. She is a songwriter manager. This, I believe, is the first time I've interviewed a songwriter manager on the show. We've interviewed many artist managers on the show, business managers, but she's a songwriter manager, and we get into all of that. On her roster, she represents songwriters who are platinum-selling, Grammy-nominated, hit, hit, hit songwriters. We're talking, they've written songs for artists like Nicki Minaj and and Justin Bieber and Miley Cyrus and Maroon 5 and Kelly Clarkson and Lauv and Backstreet Boys and Jonas Brothers, Katy Perry. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. Charlie XCX, just nonstop, hit after hit after hit. So we talk about the business of songwriting and what publishers do, how royalties work in the publishing industry, why songwriters are going for that radio hit, and and why it operates in, stru- in the structure is very different today than it was 20 years ago in terms of how songwriters are being paid, and also how you, if you're an aspiring pop songwriter, can break into the business of being a professional songwriter. If you're interested in, uh, I mentioned the pack throughout the episode a little bit when we talked about some of the nuances uh, in deal structures. Uh, you can check out the-packedpact.org uh, for more info there. We've put it in the show notes as well. As always, please find us on the socials at Ari's Take on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter. You can find me at Ari Herstand on Instagram and Twitter. Visit Ari'sTake.com. Get on that email list. That's where you're going to get all the most up-to-date information on the new music business and notified every time we release a new episode. Get on that email list, Ari'sTake.com. And please follow the show. However you're listening to this, just pause it real quick. Hit that subscribe or follow button. Give us a five-star review on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Those really help if you could head over there and do that. That would be awesome. Very, very much appreciated. All right. Let's kick it in the show. Hey, Amy Zella Kidley. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Of course. Where are you based? I am based in Miami, Florida. In Miami, Florida. Okay. Um, Have you always been there? No, actually, I just moved here uh, in November 2021. And was that for industry or personal reasons or is that, uh, yeah? 
Both. Um, okay. My husband and I both, uh, we lived in LA for 15 years. We're both mm-hmm. from the East Coast. We started uh, in the music business out there. Mm-hmm. And after 15 years of being in it there, and then COVID, mm-hmm. and then LA changing a little bit, um, I think we just wanted a fresh new energy. And also my husband started his career back in Miami um, oh, right in 2006. Okay. So it was just nostalgic for us. And we were like, if we're going to move, where are we, where are we going to be? And yeah. we, we love the water and the energy right. here. And it feels like a lot of the business is coming back here. Really interesting. Um, I mean, after everything is seems to have been moving remote. And so I I mean, every meeting I take now is over zoom, even if they live, even if the person is like literally three blocks from me, we still hop on zoom. It's just kind of the culture now. Um, So it's crazy how much it changed. (laughs) I literally the reason why I was okay with moving to Miami was because Mm -hmm. I I mean, I was very stressed about it. Because I was like, clients, my business, like, how are we going to do this? And then of yeah. course I remembered the, the last two years and I was like, well, we did it. Yeah. And I think it just showed you that you could do, I mean, if you work in the music business, you could mm-hmm. really do your job from anywhere with the, with the occasional trip or, you know, yeah. On the business side. And I, I'm uh, on the so, business side, yeah. right. So I'm curious because we're going to talk a lot about songwriting and publishing today, which I'm very excited to dig into. Um, and uh, you know, I, I've been, chatting a lot with songwriters and producers um, lately, and especially over the last couple of years and how challenging the pandemic was them in terms of figuring out remote sessions and how to even do sessions remotely and all of that. But before we get into that, um, I want to back up a little bit because you spent uh, quite a bit of time, was it at Sony ATV? I did. So I was there now, for two and a half years. Oh, okay. And um, now it's, I guess, rebranded Sony Music Publishing. Sure, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, so, and, and now you run a management company uh, for songwriters and producers. So you've kind of seen both sides of that, which I'm really um, curious to get into. But let's first start, um, I'd like to start on kind of the publishing side, just to lay the groundwork of what um, what the focus is of a major publishing company like Sony Music Publishing is now and kind of what you saw on that side um, in terms of um, just what the day to day is. Can you just break down like at the very core, what is publishing uh, on like what does a music publisher do specifically with kind of the songwriter signed to the roster? Absolutely. So I think, um, well, I mean, what a music publisher does, um, what they should do if they're really good at it, what their job is. Yep. as an A&R on the publishing side is mm-hmm. to be very good and forward thinking at strategically setting up sessions for writers um, with artists and other writers and producers that are going to kind of level up and change their lives and hopefully result in great collaborations and demos mm-hmm. that can be pitched. Um, mm-hmm. And really just having a good ear as to where songs could go and knowing the type of rooms to set up and knowing how to put writers together. I think mm-hmm. a a really good publisher does that. And I think that's why, you know, when you sign a publishing deal, um, especially if you're a newer writer, that's mm-hmm. why, why they do it for the access to the creative team. Um, for reasons like that, you know, it, it opens up a whole world of, okay, there, we have this whole company and, and ideas and creatives on the ground floor that know all of the writers in the mix. Like, where do you fit in and what is the best thing for you to do? And then strategically, you know, setting up the right 
the right things. So you mentioned uh, it's helpful. The one of the ANR's job is to uh, know how to put writers together in which rooms. Can you break that down a little bit more? Maybe give me some examples of what you dealt with and and what does that mean to put writers together for which rooms? I just think a lot of it is not just about talent Mm -hmm. because there could be people that make a lot of sense on paper Mm -hmm. um, talent wise and what they can contribute. And, Oh, this person is a great producer. This person is a great, um, you know, lyric and melody writer, top line writer. Um, This person is a great singer. Like, Oh, Mm -hmm. these are their styles. They would be great in a room together, but it's not just about that. It's about knowing personalities. I think that's a really big thing and Mm -hmm. knowing how to set up a room based on who you think really will vibe with each other. And okay. it's it's more of just the creative process because you could mm. put something, you could put writers and artists and producers in a room that look great on paper and it goes terribly because mm-hmm. of just clashing personalities. So I think mm. that's something really important to think about when setting up sessions and stuff because I think that's how you get a really good room, mm. you know? But and you don't know you- until you try. That's you what also, I was gonna ask. Yeah, <laughs> you don't know until you try. But also, if you know the writers, and I think if you're a good publisher, you also know the writers that are not just your writers. You kind of yeah. start to learn the community and you learn about people, their reputation, what they're known for, how they are in the room. Like you kind of just learn that by being around it, even if the writer assigns you or not. Mm-hmm. And I think a really good publisher puts that to work or thinks about that when they're setting up a room. Got it. So let's break it down even more basic to the basic, basic level to someone who's, let's say we're talking to uh, an aspiring songwriter who's never done a co-write before, doesn't really understand what this means when you're saying putting rooms together, putting sessions together, producers, top liners, all of that stuff. I want to break it down to the very, very core basic level, talking to someone who doesn't really know any of this or how this works. Um, Step me through uh, what a session, what that means and what that looks like when you're going to put a, uh, let's say a producer, you're saying so you have a writer and you want to place them with another writer or a producer or a top line or something like that. Uh, how, where do they go? Uh, so, how long is the session? What's the goal? What's the purpose of this? So I think a good example and one that I use is one of my writers that I started um, managing actually pretty early on when I started my company, who was a brand new writer and had only done a handful of sessions, had like three demos maybe, and had never really done like the writing circuit, especially in LA. Um, That was the perfect example of like someone who was really green and new in this environment. And um, okay, how are we gonna strategize and, and get her her first? sessions that result in things. I think the first thing that you have to think about when it's a really new writer is just making friendships. And I'm a little less um, sensitive when it's a new writer who has never been in rooms because it's like, just go into any room you can get into at the beginning, Mm -hmm. you know, and see who you like and see who you don't like. And then, then you kind of like weed out the, the ones that you're like, okay, that didn't go well. But at the beginning, I think for a new songwriter, you kind of just got to like, throw them into certain not throw but you know put them into certain rooms where you're like okay i like this person that person's great my friend manages them that person has access to this project like or maybe they're just all gonna be friends like you think about it from a few different ways and you just set up rooms and say honestly guys write you know 
just a great song today, or here's a brief and you want to write for pitch. So-and-so is looking for a song. Why don't you try and nail this brief? And so it could be one of those two things. But cool. I think in the beginning for the, yeah, for the early songwriters, it's just about getting them in rooms with people so they meet people. And explain to me what a brief is. A brief is like kind of a little like uh, synopsis, I guess, on what okay. the the artist is looking for. Mm. You know, songs you like this. And, um, I, I mean, it's funny because every brief is different, but like, you know, we'll get briefs for, I don't know, some K-pop artists where it's like, they'll give references for pop songs in the U S and mm. say, we want songs like this, but the lyrics have to be, you know, they can't be too much about love. They have to be more about, you know, universal stuff. Gotcha. And so, or film and TV is also another thing. Um, mm -hmm. A lot of film and TV departments at publishing companies, which is another reason I think publishing deals are important because you have access to them is mm -hmm. they'll have projects they're working on, um, you know, movies, commercials and then they have briefs from the directors and the music supervisors and they say write a song for this commercial or write a song for this movie um actually a really good example of that is one i just worked on for a movie that j-lo did called marry me um and that we got a brief for the title track um mm -hmm. called marry me and it was very much about what the song should be about the movie and how to tie it all in together and the writers nailed it on the first try. So and is this it can either be for a pop artist or a movie. Did they uh, write, produce, record uh, this song or was this song written for J-Lo and then she sang it for the title track? Yeah, they wrote and produced it um, for her for the movie. And then she sang it. Got it. Okay, interesting. And so this session in particular, was it something that yeah. they wrote the song uh, they produced the demo, um, and then did they send the demo to J-Lo? The, stu the studio, yeah, and then they sent it to J-Lo. And then did they reproduce, recreate the song from scratch? They, honestly, she didn't really change anything other than mm. some production was fixed. But oh, it was okay. pretty much the same as, like, the day of demo, which is, like, that never happens that perfectly. Like, when you write to a brief and you nail it on the first try... Yeah. And it's like, no, well, actually, this is perfect. We're going to we're going to use it as is. Actually, we're not going to change any lyrics, really. It's mm. Like, that was pretty cool because, like, you could write to briefs all day and then, like, you know, nothing happens with the song. But to really, like, get it on the first try and to have it then be, you know, this big moment throughout the movie because that mm -hmm. song was actually used a few times in the movie. Um, cool. It, it was really awesome because it was like we didn't even really get many notes back. It was like it was just like some production notes. That's it. Yeah, that's great. That's amazing. Yeah, and, it was and really so, cool. Yeah. So um, with that in particular, um, when you have a brief and they know that they're writing for J Lo for this movie, um, what kind of goes into the process? Was it something like was it similar? They gave examples of other songs they wanted it to sound like. They had words they wanted it. Did they watch the yeah. film? Yep. They got some clips of the film, some okay. exactly all the stuff you're saying. And so when cool. you get briefs for, for movies, for opening scenes, for specific scenes, for end titles, like you will normally get a pretty specific breakdown of exactly what they're looking for. And mm -hmm. some writers really like doing that. Some don't 
some love it because it's like mm. an assignment you know it's mm-hmm. like okay i know exactly what to do like this is like helpful direction you know sure. cool um and then just to get into the weeds a little bit more on this um how do deals typically work in this capacity i mean um you don't have to tell me the jlo deal specifically but in in this kind of a case i mean we hear uh all the time these days where the artists they get co-writing credit on the song when they don't have any actually contribution to the song are you seeing a lot of that these days or have we kind of gotten away from that i think it just depends on the artist but yeah it still happens um it still happens it's case by case You know, I think, honestly, what I tell my writers, and even if it's not warranted, I think, especially to keep the train moving and to play the game and to be in good, you know, you know, just in a good vibe with the artist is to, you know, even though it might not be morally right to give someone writing if they haven't written on something, I think for the relationship with the artist to continue if that's what they want, if they want to feel like they really made it their own, um, Mm -hmm. maybe changed a word or two. You know, I think I'm a little less crazy about that because I think the long-term relationship with the artist is more important, especially if it's a big artist. Mm. Yeah. It's a big, but it just depends not like there, there's like artists that are massive that like don't ask for publishing and they're Mm -hmm. like, you know, pretty old school in the sense that we're like, okay, I just cut the song. That's it. Yeah. And I never will ask for publishing. Yeah. But then there are ones, it's, it's a newer thing, honestly. Mm-hmm. I think in the last 10 years where a writer, where artists are asking for it more than like back in the day, it was like, you saw Diane Warren written by Diane Warren. Like the artist never took publishing. You know what I mean? Right. Like, yep. but it, the music business is always changing. And I feel like my advice is to not burn bridges early on in your career or even like in when you've reached your highest point, like you never know what's going to keep it going and you just never want to, I don't know. You want to stand up for yourself for sure. But I think there's a balance of also being in a good place with the artist. Why do you think artists have been asking for publishing over the last 10 to 15 years when they didn't have a hand in writing the song? I think they just realized how much could come from it and an extra source of income, I guess, which, you know, they have their touring and stuff, but all that and their masters. Um, so I don't know why they need it. I don't know. I think they just realized, you know, there's an, but you know what? I don't know if it's just that. I think it's also just like, they want to feel connected to the song and feel like they were a part of it. Cause there are some artists that started taking songs that usually wrote their songs. And an artist gets to a point, I think, sometimes where they're like, you know what, I'm open to hearing songs, but sometimes it just doesn't feel right if they don't have their name on it as a writer. They don't feel as connected to it. Hmm. I think it's more that, honestly. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a wild debate happening right now. I mean, um, for anyone who doesn't know about the pact, um, they formed this uh this is a bunch of songwriters, hundred, I think some songwriters came together last year, uh, spearheaded by Emily Warren and Justin Tranter and, and many, many other songwriters basically signing an open letter saying that we, uh, we are not going to give up songwriting credit to artists if they didn't have a hand in writing this. So, um, have you seen, have you looked into the pact? I 
yeah, I told my writers, I, we, I, I didn't think that's something that we should do. Um, okay. because I look at it a little differently. Mm. Right. Cause you're saying we don't burn bridges and, and I mean, because the, the, argument on the artist side, which, um, you know, dates back to the days of Elvis and the Colonel uh, going to Dolly Parton saying, uh, we want to cut your song, I Will Always Love You, and but Elvis is going to get 50% of publishing. And Dolly was like, no, uh, I wrote the song, Elvis didn't write it. And then the Colonel said, uh, well, who are you? You're nothing. This is Elvis. Uh, if he doesn't cut it, the song's never going to see the light of day. And Dolly knew her worth at the time. And she said, no, I'm not going to do it. And then fast forward a couple decades and Whitney Houston, of course, turned it into a hit. And if you look at the credits there, Whitney Houston is not credited as a songwriter. Dolly kept 100% of the publishing and she held yep. out and knew her worth. I think it just depends on the artist. It really does. Like, I, like, that's a perfect example. Look at Elvis and look at Whitney. And it's like also their team mm -hmm. is a big part of it. Like, I think, you know, if someone's in their ear too, saying like, you need the publishing on this. I don't know. I just, uh, the pact was something that I saw writers of mine were asked to sign it. And I thought, you know, artists are going to see this and they're going to associate you with this mm -hmm. and they might get a bad taste in their mouth. And of course, Writers get a bad taste in their mouth when people take something that is not really warranted. Yep. But I think it's about just keep it moving. Like if it's mm. a small percentage, like I'd rather have a small percentage given to someone than not have something happen at all. I think right. I because I, I'll just see something be shut down. And it's it's the the power they try to use for that is is a turnoff. But at the same mm. time, you got to play the game a little bit. And it's like. Mm -hmm. I, I don't want my writers to ever lose opportunities because of that, mm. because I've seen, you know, my husband's a songwriter and I've always seen him just, yes, yes, yes. Just whatever keeps it moving. Yes. These splits. Okay. I'm not going to fight these splits because it's a difference of 2%. Like keep it moving, keep it moving. Cause the truth is you don't know when it's like going to stop. And mm -hmm. also you don't want to shoot yourself in the foot sometimes by being mm. difficult. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's a it's an interesting debate uh, to have, and I I totally um, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, if it's two percent, that's not like a huge deal. And I guess you know, giving up, uh, maintaining two percent uh, of of uh, a lot is better than maintaining two percent of nothing, um, and and or even fifty percent or whatever. Fifty percent of a, a lot is far better than a hundred percent of nothing. Hundred uh, percent. Yeah. <laughs> No fun, but um, fifty percent is is just uh, that's a cra that's a crazy story because asking for fifty percent of a song that you didn't write is to me that's where it's like okay, mm -hmm. we'll give you something. Yeah, but fifty percent is just ridiculous. I mean, mm -hmm. I wouldn't that at that today. I would be like, I mean, I would drop the line there. I mean, fifty percent. That's yeah. So when does it, when did the splits conversation happen typically? Um, is this something at the end when this when the demo is made? Do the songwriters and producers get together and be like, "All right, we're splitting this three ways," or they, what is it? I think these days you have to wait till the very end because now to see a song from A to Z and how it really takes on so many different forms sometimes, like mm -hmm. there will be a new co-writer that comes in that changes a word. There will be a featured artist put on a song that wasn't originally on it. So like mm. you can negotiate the splits in the beginning, but I think it's just like, you're, I mean, not wasting time, but you're like, mm -hmm. you might as well just deal with it at the end when we see what the final product is and know 
what our baseline is for what was originally created. Do you know what I mean? There would be days Mm -hmm. that when I started in the business a a while ago, it would be like, we'd set up a session and it'd be like, okay, just so you know, this is a three-way split before the session starts. And I'm like, Mm -hmm. okay, cool. Sure. Confirmed. But then like, yes, you can confirm that. But then the song could have like five different changes before it sees the light of day. Mm -hmm. So like, I, I like doing those splits at the end, knowing if there was the core group that started it, they'll be taken care of and we'll have that conversation and we'll fight for that. But otherwise it's just like wasted, not wasted conversation, but it's like wasting people's time. And so you know exactly what you're dealing with. The final product mm. from start from the beginning of the demo to the end of the demo, I think. Have you ever seen something happen where there are three songwriters that write, uh, write the song, cut the demo, it then gets, um, you know, sent to a bigger producer. The producer adds their twist on it. It gets sent to the artist. The artist wants to change a couple words or add their name to it, has a featured artist. And then those original three songwriters that, let's say, wrote probably 95% of the song get shaved down to a For very sure. small percentage. I'm dealing with it right now. <laughs> mm. Dealing with it right now with the song that we're working on. And it's like it was started in the room with four people. Mm -hmm. Um, I'd say there were five new people that came on to get it to where it needed to go, including the two featured, the two artists, the artist that is singing it and the feature and the additional people that worked on it. And we're dealing with that. We're, Mm. we're going to deal with that. We're in the process of, okay, well, these are the people that wrote the majority of the song and we will fight for them. And I will put my foot down because, you know, but then you also look at it like, okay, those other people definitely helped make it happen. Hmm. And got it to the finish line, right. you know. So, and I'm, I've been on both ends. I've been on mm-hmm. the end of like the writers where they were the original ones who created it, but then I've been on the other end of like, okay, well, these people really made it what it was and helped finish it. But usually, I think you have to respect the original hmm. creators if most of it was kept. Yep. Yep. I think. Uh, but yeah, I I agree. Um. So so now you're a uh, I guess do you consider yourself a a manager, a songwriter, producer, manager. Is that kind of the role? I do. And break that down for me. What does that mean? You know, I think it's, it means a lot of things. Um, I think a good manager is someone who doesn't only like react to the incoming, but is also very proactive Okay. and acts kind of like a publisher where mm. they're a good A&R as well. They know mm-hmm. how to get their writers into the right rooms. They know how to pitch songs that their writers send them. You know, um, I think you kind of to be a songwriter manager and be a good one, mm-hmm. you kind of got to utilize that side of your brain too and not just be like, oh, splits came in. Let me figure this out. Oh, let me figure out the deal. Let me figure out, you know, the credits. Like, mm-hmm. no, it's like, let me run their calendar. I think a good songwriter manager, I think what I love about my job is that I get to apply both of those things to what I do. I, I really do think, though, that the A&R brain and knowing how to set up a room and get songs from start to the radio mm-hmm. is is really important. And um, I think that comes from, I mean, for me, it came from um, having a publishing background first. Mm-hmm. Real quick, I want to let you know about DistroKid. Well, I'm sure you already know about DistroKid, but they are partners with Ari's Take, and they are a great company that can help get your music distributed to Spotify, Apple Music, TikTok, Tidal, Instagram, all of that 
Over a million artists use DistroKid. I'm one of those artists. I have distributed some of my music in the past. And something I appreciate about DistroKid as not just an artist, but someone who studies this space is they have been one of the most innovative companies over the last 10 years. They came in and completely changed the game. One of the first companies offering unlimited uploads, and now most of the other distributors have had to change their policies to kind of copy and follow suit uh, what DistroKid was doing, and the industry had changed, of course. DistroKid doesn't keep a commission. That means you keep 100% of your royalties and earnings from the DSPs. They also offer payment splitting. They call it splits, something that, for me at this point, is a deal breaker. I don't want to have to cut checks to all my collaborators and the producers and everybody else that is owed royalties and owed splits from my earnings. DistroKid will cut those checks directly. You can get them to uh, your collaborators to sign up, and then DistroKid will cut all the checks to all your collaborators. And they were one of the first to offer that of the DIY self-service distributors. DistroKid continues to innovate. Check them out. If you need to get your music out there, districtkid.com. Well, let's talk about that journey a little bit from songs to the radio. Uh, Break that down for me. How does that work? It's different every time. Um, There could be a song that was sitting around for years before it sees the light of day because it just took the right artist to cut it. It could be... Mm a song that was cut a million times by different artists and then never released but then one Mm. artist will end up loving it and getting attached to it and then putting it out um but it really just starts with like you know a demo being sent to you i mean a good example of that is my one of my first big placements was work from home by fifth harmony um and that was just a demo that my writers did that they sent to me um and I sent it to a few people. Mm-hmm. Um, I kind of, when I got the demo, I started listening to it over and over and over again, probably 10 times in a row. And that's when I was like, okay, <laughs> like they, this is this is a big song. Uh-huh. Um, and so I shot it out to like a few different A&Rs that I knew, but I, it was when Fifth Harmony was like really like coming off of um, Worth It, um, which was a big song for them. And they needed, they needed another big hit. Um, and so they, their A&R, um, who I actually didn't even really have a relationship with. I kind of just cold emailed him. Hmm. Um, he responded and was like, I love this. And to see it come to my computer and then for him to react and then for him to be like, okay, the girls are cutting it. Okay, we're getting Ty Dolla Sign on it. It's either going to be Ty Dolla Sign or I forget who the other person. It was like mm-hmm. just the journey. And then um, even then the change in the name, it was, it was called Work originally. And then... Mm-hmm. Rihanna, um, a few weeks before it was supposed to come out, dropped her song work. And I think everyone saw like, <laughs> oh my God, like, but our song is called work. And it's like, they changed the title from work to work from home. And then it mm-hmm. ended up being, I mean, it, it's, it's six times platinum or maybe five times platinum now, but number one radio um, mm-hmm. hit, you know, it was, it was a really big song. And that was my first experience of watching it happen firsthand. Mm-hmm. Cool. I've, no, I had had other cuts before, but they were sure. more so like album cuts that I had gotten that never really made it to the radio. Right. So so let's talk about that a little bit. Um, the difference between getting an album cut now in a streaming in the streaming era uh, versus an album cut 20 years ago where you're still getting paid when people are buying the CD. Um, yeah. Why is it so important these days for songwriters to get a radio hit versus just a cut on a big album? 
because that's how they're going to make their money as as a writer. Um, but what I will say is you never know what album cut could end up turning into a radio hit. Okay. You, you just don't know. And that's why another fight that a lot of songwriter managers um, fight for is this has to be a single. And it's like, well, if it's not the first single, it doesn't mean it won't be a single because these days you can't really guarantee who's going to react to what. Like in a, a good example of that is You Broke Me First by Tate McRae. That was a song that my writer, uh, Victoria Zaro did. Um, and she's the writer I was talking about that was um, pretty early on um, when we started working together. She didn't have many demos um, and she'd never really been in very many rooms. And she was like a sophomore in college and dropped out to like fully focus on songwriting. Um, uh, four years into us working together, she met Tate and they worked and they did You Were Me First. And that was a song she put out, but it wasn't going to be her radio single. Mm. There was another song that they did that was going to be the radio single. And that song reacted. And so mm. they switched what the single was going to be. So it's a lot of like, you can't really like an album cut or like just a one-off single. Like you just don't know anymore. What's going to really raise its hand because it's all about the, the fans, the people, the, you know, the consumers, like they're going to tell you, so, you know, if it's an album that is like, you know, one of the biggest albums of the year and, you know, it's streamed a lot, obviously the writers are not going to see what they would make if it was a radio hit. But that's why a lot of times now people are asking more for points on, on songs if their album cuts as well, because at least if they're streamed, they'll, you know, if it's a big album that's streamed a lot, um, they could at least see something from that. Wait, this is news to me. You're saying that songwriters these days are asking for points on the sometimes, master? Sometimes. Interesting. I've, I've heard about producers getting points on the master. I haven't heard about songwriters getting points. Now, that's very interesting. Okay, cool. Good I think know. it's just case by case. I think it's sure. case by case. Again, I never go after it for my clients unless it's like, one. Of, you know, it, it. everything is case by case. Sure. The way we work. Well, it's going the other way. Artists are trying to get points. Artists are trying exactly. to get cut into the composition. Like, so why not songwriters get cut into the master then, I guess? Exactly. But yeah. you kind of just have to know who you're dealing with. And like, yeah. if it's a fight worth fighting. And if it's, sure. I, I always like my favorite thing is just like pick your battles. Like, sure. you know, but it is something that comes up. And because if they do have a point on, mm -hmm. on the master and it is only a streaming record, they could make more, way totally. more. But and yeah. It's just, again, it's not something I'm like, you can't work with my writer unless you give us a point. No, it's like, let's sure. like suss out the situation and then figure it out. And if it's mm -hmm. the right time to ask or if it's even appropriate to ask, maybe we will. Mm -hmm. But some people are demanding it. And I think that when people demand things like that, they mm. they ruin their relationships. Mm. Yeah, and just to break down the royalties a little bit as to why these numbers work out the way they are, you're saying like... The reason that radio hits are so valuable is because there are performance royalties earned, performance yeah. royalties only earned for the songwriters, the publishers and the songwriters. And those performance royalties are far greater for uh, radio spins than they are for streaming uh, plays. Streaming, Yeah, streams. streaming is more a master thing. Mm -hmm. And exactly, the master on uh, streams, the, the labels actually earn about 
five times what the publishers earn, four to five times on what the publishers earn for a stream. Um, and that's that's also an issue is that because the labels are earning so much more than what the publishers are earning, that's why songwriters are making so much less uh, for streams. Whereas when it's spun on the radio, uh, labels don't earn anything from that from radio spins in the US, but and the songwriters do. Uh, so that's where a lot of the money is coming from. Yep, exactly. So the new world that we live in. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Which Um, is not awesome, but, you know, there's just ways to to work with it. And, Mm -hmm. you know, again, case by case, I think. Right. So as a songwriter, as a songwriter manager, um, when you're looking to sign a new writer, um, are you what's that process like? Who are you looking at? And uh, how do you decide who you're going to bring onto your roster? If I love them as part of my family. <laughs> okay. Truly. Like yeah. I will, I feel like, and anyone, any songwriter, manager, any manager has mm-hmm. to feel that way. There could be the most talented person in the world, but if they're just like not a good vibe with you or like you mm-hmm. don't, you don't have that connection or if they don't kind of look to you and take your advice and kind of also have that open communication with you. It's just, it's very much for me, a personality thing more than it is a talent thing because Mm. there are so many talented people that come across my desk, many people's desks, but you can't work with all the talented people in the world. Like you, I I have to love the music and I have to love what they do for sure and believe in them and see the future and be like, Oh my God, this could in five years, this could be this, but um, it's, it's a personality and um, Mm just family vibe thing for me. So break down maybe one or two of uh, the songwriters that you've signed in the last uh, year or two and, and how did you meet and, and how did that uh, relationship get started? In the last year or two? Um, well, I mean, most of my writers have been years. with me for the last five years. Sure. It's been pretty much the same crew. Um, oh, cool. Well then, yeah. How did you get started with them? Um, well, one of them is a writer named Michael Pollock, who is extraordinary. He's incredible. And I actually met him through an artist I had signed, uh, at my old company, uh, named Lauv, who I still work with and I A&R his project. Um, and Michael was writing all of Lauv's stuff with him, all the mm-hmm. early stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I met Michael six or seven years ago at this point, and he was a baby songwriter, uh, just graduating school. Um, and then when I started my company, he had still not had a manager and he came to me and was like, I want to sit with you and I want to talk about management. Mm. And I was like, say less. Like, mm-hmm. I already love you. You're incredible as a human. And you're also mm. one of the most talented people I've ever met. So mm. let's do this. Like it was a no brainer for me with him, but we had known each other, you know, mm-hmm. we, I, I, I already knew him. And so, and we're also from like, you know, we're both from Long Island, New York. We have that kind of unspoken language where we are just like from the same place. And we kind sure. of, I, I don't know, like he feels, he already felt like extended family to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I knew him. And so mm-hmm. I knew he was talented, but I knew him as a person. So that's how I met him. And then another one is, um, is Nick Long, who I met through a really good friend of mine in the business. Um, he introduced me to him a while ago and was just like, hey, this kid is an artist slash writer. 
He wants mm-hmm. to be in more pop stuff. This was like seven years ago, actually, six mm-hmm. years ago. Um, and, you know, Nick and I met. I put him in some sessions. Um, and then I had my daughter and kind of took some time off work for a second. And then we reconnected. And he was like, hey, I'm still like unpublished. I'm unmanaged. Do you want to work together? And I was like, it's mm-hmm. funny you say that because perfect timing and I already knew him as well I had spent time with him and really got to know him um so when he asked me I was like I mean I think you're one of the coolest people ever one of the nicest people ever and also one of the most talented people ever and I love alternative music which is something that he is very very good at he can write he's one anything. of machine gun kelly's co-writers yeah. and uh he's credited i was just looking billboard has credited him as uh helping bring he helped bring pop punk back to the top of the charts with machine gun kelly absolutely absolutely yeah. so i heard that in him pretty early on because he was when i met him he had done some stuff for like papa roach and some other heart more hard rock uh artists but sure he also did electric love for borns so it's like mm-hmm there's both of those types of songs that he did. And I was like, okay, you wrote that, but you also wrote that. You're Mm. really cool. And Mm. like, those are two different types of songs. There is just so much we can do together. I just knew creatively that he was going to be one of those people that I connected to. um, And also is one of my favorite people. But I knew that because again, like I had already met him. So a lot of the Mm -hmm. people that I did bring on early in my management company were people that I knew and had already started relationships with. Mm-hmm. And so when, for instance, um, with Nick, with Nick Long, um, you said when you met him, he was still unpublished. You're meaning he didn't have a publishing deal at the time? No. And how do you then go For his about... artist stuff, he was published, but he, he was an gotcha. artist as well. So he had published okay. a publishing deal for that, but, um, but he was not published, no. So then, you know, we, we did the rounds and got a publishing deal. And how do you go about doing that uh, with a songwriter who you really love and believe in um, getting getting that publishing deal? And who do you start with and who do you go to? to I think uh, it just depends on what they want. It depends on what type of deal they want. It depends on the type of person they are. Kind of mm-hmm. like know who. Again, it's a personality thing again. It's a creative thing again. It's like, okay, the type of music that Nick does or whoever, whoever does, like, you know who's good at what at publishers mm-hmm. if you've been in the business for a minute. You know mm-hmm. who understands what type of music. So it's that, but it's also like who's going to do the right type of deal for this client that they want, mm-hmm. who is going to give them the support they want. Um, some want less support than others. Some would rather do an admin deal and, and have less creative support. So really it's just, again, case by case with each writer. Um, break down how publishing deals look these days so you just reference admin deal can you explain what an admin deal is versus a co-pub deal versus a traditional publishing deal or yeah what all these so mean? a co-pub deal is really like split down the middle 50 50 writer and publishing company um an admin deal the writer gets way more of the share they get to keep mm-hmm. more of their share the publishing company gets much less okay. and they administer it so i think because of that they're not as inclined to do as much of the creative stuff and they just admin the stuff and really make sure everything's being taken care of. So, mm-hmm. you know, I think for a lot of early writers, it's it's smarter to do a co-pub deal because if you're really looking to have the support of a team, to have them really jump in and dive in, I think a co-pub deal is smarter. I think if you're a more established writer, mm-hmm. admin deals are smarter. Or if you just don't want to give up 
that much of your, you know, copyrights. Mm-hmm. It's just, they're just different, you know, but then they come with different services. Mm-hmm. So. Right. I mean, um, so in terms of ownership, um, I, I'm assuming the admin deal, they don't necessarily take any ownership they're just um collecting the royalties and passing them through yeah they have a smaller amount way smaller amount of ownership and um the writer gets to keep theirs and to some people that's really important to some writers other writers are like no i want the whole building behind me and i want the 50 50 partnership Mm -hmm. it it just depends and just um for clarity if someone signs a co-pub deal, what does the term look like? And is it something where is, uh, if I write a song under contract on a co-pub deal, does this publishing company own the song forever? Or do I get the rights back after a certain amount of time? Or how does that all work? It just depends. Depends where you sign. It depends on the lawyer you have. It depends what you want. It depends. Some some companies are more um, open to discussing that. And others are like, we will never even entertain this conversation if that's what you want. Hmm. So... You know, I, I think it just also is like, okay, that might be something that's very important to a writer is getting their copyrights mm-hmm. back. Mm-hmm. And so you kind of know the companies that like do that and won't do that. So then gotcha. you kind of just say, okay, well, we're not going to do, do do a deal there because that's not even, a you know, a point mm-hmm. we can entertain. So Got it. Speak to the s- aspiring songwriters out there who don't really know what steps to take. And they're like, I want to be pop song writer, I think I write great songs. I don't really know where to begin. Uh, how do I get a manager? How do I get a publishing deal? How do I get into the rooms with people where I'm going to get these songs cut? I think these days, um, now more than ever, reaching out on social media is something that works. You think it doesn't work, but like it does. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, people DM people all the time and they send music and that's a way of sharing stuff. It's, it's easier than just getting someone's email, like back in the old day or getting their cell phone number, you know, um, there's, you should always do that. You should do it and not be too persistent, but like, Mm. there's a way to follow up. I feel like, you know, if someone's like really aggressive and just continues to like pound you and send you stuff, it's like, okay, well, if they're like this, like maybe it's a lot, you know, but, um, and I get it. But that's something that I personally see. And I'm like, okay, this person's a bit aggressive. Like if they send it once or twice and I'm like, wait, crap, I missed that message. Like, let me check that out. And like, Mm -hmm. I see what they said. Like, you know, that's really a way, like a lot of people are getting signed by just straight DMing people. I think it's also um, a lot of PROs, Mm -hmm. performing rights organizations, um, like BMI ASCAP, they meet writers very early on and then they will tip off managers and publishers to some of the younger writers that just got affiliated um, mm. that don't really have much going on, but will. Um, I think it's just about, honestly, for, for young songwriters, I think first and foremost, get affiliated with the PRO and try and meet someone there mm. um, because they have great connections mm. and they will know where to kind of, you know, introduce you or place, you know, like who, who, the right people to introduce you to. Do you think it matters what city a songwriter's living in? I mean, in the beginning of their career, like, you know, LA has really become the hub of like pop songwriting at least. Um, And so, yeah, by being there, you're going to get more opportunities and you're going to be in more rooms if you're there because that's where Mm -hmm. more people are. So right now I do think it is important if you're in the beginning stages of your career, if you can financially, everything, Mm 
live in LA, like that would be ideal. But again, then there's Zoom. It's like people are less inclined to do Zoom these days, Zoom sessions, but yep. they will. Mm. Um, you know, but that has opened up a whole new thing because no one did that before. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. you know, Nashville is great. There's definitely a pop world um, bubbling over there, um, mm-hmm. but also country, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, Miami starting to be be a place again where where pop records are made. Um, New York, there really aren't that many people there. Hmm. You know, I always look, I'm like, who, if when my writers go to New York, I'm like, who can I put them with? I'm like, oh my God, everyone that lived in New York moved to LA. <laughs> so yeah, yeah I, I think location does have something to do with it if you want to be in person in the rooms. Quick shout out to the Antisocial Producers Club in New York. They're the remaining bastion of songwriter producers. <laughs> These are the hit songwriter producers. The the only ones left, apparently, uh, that are in New York. They they um, banded together to create the Antisocial Producers Club. I love that. Um, yeah, because re- you're right. You can that's do what they anything. Said. That was their mission. Yeah. Yes. But you know what, though? You can do anything. You don't have to. Even though if you're a songwriter or producer and you want to really be in the mix now that the world's opening up again, like, yes, be in L.A., but at the same time, people are making records and getting songs on the radio through the pandemic without being in the same room. So it's just a different world now. So it is possible. What's the feedback that you receive from your writers about remote Zoom sessions like that? I think just, like, the delay in Mm. it sometimes and not really being able to, like, hear what the person's doing and like it's just a little it's just a connection not even just like actual like internet connection but like the connection that you feel to someone in a room now that we have that back is just different Mm. but i think i think it was like when i when i got feedback early on from the zoom sessions it was like yeah like we got something good but it was like delayed and like i couldn't really hear what they were playing and like you know if it's set up properly obviously that shouldn't happen, but it does happen sometimes, you know, it does happen sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. Gotcha. Gotcha. Cool. And then, um, so when you're saying, uh, that these aspiring songwriters can kind of pitch their stuff or DM someone through social media, um, what should they be sending? Should it be a voice memo that they wrote? Should it be a highly produced demo? I mean, Work tapes, I think, are always fine. Like, it doesn't have to be fully produced out. I think if you're a good A&R or a good manager or a good publisher or mm-hmm. whatever, you can hear if the song is good or not mm. from the first verse and chorus, whether it's produced out or if it's um, if it's stripped. Mm. You know, um, I think you send your five favorite songs that you have. Mm. I think anything more than that is, like, a lot, personally. Mm-hmm. Mm with the volume of songs that are going around these days. Yeah. But um, I just think that, and, you know, I think it's it's funny because a lot of producers are like, it has to be a finished. Uh, well, I guess it's different if you're a producer and you want them to hear your production and what you can do. Mm-hmm. I think sending tracks that way, just tr- straight up tracks is, is good. So, you know. Instrumentals. You can hear those instrumentals. Mm-hmm. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, or songs that you worked on that are produced out. But if you're a songwriter, I think it's okay if they're a little more stripped back. Because okay. if you're a songwriter and if I'm listening to something and someone says they're a songwriter, I'm going to listen to the song. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to listen to the production as much. I'm just going to listen to like, is this a good song? Cool. Cool. So. Cool. And when um, your writers, when more kind of established professional writers, producers are creating 
songs uh, to be pitched uh, to artists to cut, what level do they get them to? Is that where they're fully producing these out? Not at all. You could, if a song is really, really great and it's undeniable, I think it doesn't even have to be a finished demo. I think someone can hear through that. I think that's like the narrative that a lot of people get wrong. It's like, um, you know, it has to be finished. Mm. I think, again, if you're the producer and you want it to feel like you sound sounding finished, yes, send it that way. But it the 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 thing I'm seeing is that a lot of artists change production anyway. They mm. hear something and they're like, "Yeah, this is a great production," but it's not how I envision the production for me. Got so, it. you know, I I personally like pitching songs um, that are a little more stripped back, Um, but not always. It just depends. But my point is that it doesn't have to be finished all the time. It could be like bones of a song. And then you're like, oh, I know what to do with this. Hmm. We'll make it, we'll build it, you know, to make it right. Can your producer go back and make it sound like this? Yeah. You know? Yeah. So when you're saying uh, aspiring songwriters can, um, the, the steps that they should take and, and they can DM people. Are you saying they should be maybe getting in touch with other writers, producers, or yeah, songwriter managers? They should. Or, okay. they should. Mm-hmm. I think managers, other writers, PROs, BMI, ASCAP, CSAC, all of them, um, yeah. anyone and everyone, you mm-hmm. know? Um, it's funny. My husband, he is so good at checking his dms and i'm not as good as it at it like sure. but he loves listening to stuff that is sent to him mm-hmm. and he actually listens and like it's like oh my god listen to this is you know and you know it's just you'd think someone who's really busy and is a busy songwriter is and doesn't have the time but like they do because they want to hear new fresh stuff all the time anyway cool. you know that's going to keep cool. them creatively inspired and be like oh my god like there's this you know young new kid that sent me this and it's like really dope and like how else would we have heard it, you know? Yeah, absolutely. That's great. Amazing. Uh, so helpful. Uh, really helpful tips. And I know there's a lot of young, aspiring songwriters out there that are just like frothing right now. And they've been taking rapid notes. And they're they're very excited uh, to kind of um, take these next steps. So um, this has been so helpful, Jamie. I, I have one final question that I ask everyone who comes on the show. And that is, what does it mean to you to make it in the new music business? I think what it means to make it in a new music business still applies to the old music business, which is always relationships, um, have good relationships with people, um, pick your battles, (laughs) um, know that it's a changing industry and that you kind of have to like move with that and work with that. And like what worked back in the day doesn't necessarily always work now. And you kind of just have to go with it Mm -hmm. and adapt to it. At the end of the day, though, it's just about relationships. It's about having the right relationships, and it's about not burning bridges. And it's about being someone that people not only look at you as like, oh, my God, you're so talented, but also really like as a human. Because mm. at the end of the day, like, it's so saturated these days with, like, so much music. If there's someone that's a little more difficult to work with or not easy, it's like, then they'll move on to the next person. My advice is like, just be a good person and have good relationships. And awesome. that's how you're going to really make it. I think. Amazing. So. Jamie Zellikinlin, thank you so much. This is great. Thank you so much for having me. I hope. I hope this helps. Okay. Okay.
episode is brought to you by DistroKid. DistroKid is a distribution service that can get your music into all the DSPs like Spotify, Apple Music, TikTok, Tidal, Instagram. Over a million artists have used DistroKid. I'm one of those artists. I've used DistroKid to get my music out, distribute some of my songs. As you know, as I look into all of these distribution services, I test them out. And DistroKid is great. They offer a ton of features, annual fee, unlimited uploads, and you keep 100% of your royalties. Check out districtkid.com. 